Well, I ask that you would uh, stand for the scripture reading, this being from the book of Matthew as we close out chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, and we'll be looking at verses 35 to 38. Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You may be seated. Well, as always, it is really a delight to be gathered with you this morning. And uh, it's a real privilege to be bringing the word of God to you. Well, in the uh, past few chapters of the book of Matthew, as we've been continuing our study, we've seen time and time again that Jesus has supreme authority. He has an authority over all things. The people saw that he taught with authority, and so he's demonstrated time and time again he has authority over every area of life, over all creation. He's shown that he has authority over sickness and disease, over nature, over demons, and even over forgiveness of sins. And in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus again welding that authority to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. But we're also going to see something that we, that we haven't seen yet in the book of Matthew. Jesus is going to begin calling his disciples to join him in his ministry. And this is a transition that's going to be expanded on uh, very shortly in the next chapter There, Jesus is going to commission his disciples. He's going to give them specific instruction, and he's going to give uh, give them his own authority to carry out that work. But for us to understand that commission and the, the ministry of Jesus' disciples, we're going to need to understand Jesus' own ministry. And in our passage today, we're going we're gonna to see that. We're going to see a description of Jesus doing ministry and see what that is pointed towards, what his purpose is in that. First, we're going to see how Israel's leaders had failed in their shepherding ministry. Then we're going to see how Christ, out of compassion, steps in as the good shepherd and performs the duty that those leaders should have done. And then lastly, we're going to see Jesus begin calling his disciples into that same ministry. How he's going to call them to recognize the great need around them and their role in meeting it. So with that in mind, let's just pray again um, together before we look at the passage. Lord, we so look forward to hearing you speak from your word. Just give us faith to believe that it has power Um, Give us uh, an attitude of delight and engagement in it. And Lord, may we not be content to walk away here unchanged. May we not forget the things that you have for us in your word. 
and that it's meant to lead us into greater obedience and, and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, in our weakness, in our slowness to apply your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, our passage tells us that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. So what this is, is a summary statement of Jesus' ministry throughout all of northern Galilee. It's a reminder to us that as we've read all these different events in the gospels, like uh, being Jesus being questioned by John's disciples, like him healing Jairus' daughter, or him casting out a demon from a man who couldn't speak from last week. All of these are really just snapshots in a ministry that lasted several years, right? It's not the totality of all that Jesus said and did. In fact, what has been recorded in, in the gospel accounts is really just a sampling of what Jesus had done, carefully selected and put together. But he did so much more. He said and taught so much more. And this is why Matthew adds this important summary statement here. Okay, what Jesus has been doing in these few examples we've seen in the Gospels, he has done everywhere. He's done in every village and town that he came through. And this also explains to us, makes good sense of why in a few short chapters, we're going to hear Jesus sharply rebuke these same towns. He's going to tell them, I did all these mighty works, work after work after work in you, and yet you still wouldn't believe. You still refuse to repent and turn towards me as God's Messiah. We see here Jesus tirelessly labored to give them an understanding and to bring them to repentance. He performed miracle after miracle among them to demonstrate his authority from God and his identity as God's Messiah and even as God himself. And as he was um, doing these things and going to the different towns and villages performing miracles, his assessment, as the text tells us, is that the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now the phrase harassed and helpless literally means in Greek to be skinned and cast down to the ground. So the picture that Jesus is offering us is one of a flock that has been ravaged and, and mangled because there wasn't a shepherd to take care of them, to watch over them. And I think a little background on shepherding and shepherding in this context of the, the first century is going to help us here. Because sheep are dependent on their shepherds for everything. Uh, shepherds would lead, out their, lead their sheep out of the sheepfold to find pasture, uh, cool water to drink, uh, shepherds would defend their sheep from wild animals. They would bring them back when they strayed. They would treat them when they got injured. I think uh, uh, one Bible dictionary had a helpful statement for us here. Uh, it said that shepherds were providers, guides, protectors, and constant companions of sheep. They were figures of authority and leadership to the animals under their, under their care. 
I think it's a helpful picture of what shepherds ought to do. But if, on the other hand, a sheep was just left alone, simply put, they, they would die. In fact, um, without a shepherd to guide them, a sheep with, within eyesight of the sheepfold cannot find its way back into it. And it is to these sheep, to sheep without a shepherd, that Jesus compares the, the Israelites. They were helpless. They were lost. They were exposed. They had been ravaged. But how in the world did God's chosen people, the Jews, find themselves in a position like that? Was there really no leader to, to provide them with guidance or instruction or, or care? Well, actually, Israel did have leaders. The scribes and the Pharisees were experts on the law. They were widely seen by the people as spiritual authorities and examples of righteous and holy living. The people revered to them. They looked to them for guidance. They were Israel's leaders. Yet, they had abused and neglected their station so completely that as Jesus looks out on the sheep, he doesn't, see a, he doesn't see a single sign of there being any shepherd caring for them or uh, guiding them. There wasn't a single sign of anyone having tended to the sheep. The Pharisees were called, they were supposed to guide and feed the sheep. But instead they exploited their sheep and they fed only themselves. And shortly before his death, Jesus denounced their hypocrisy. And this is what he said. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. Now it's clear here that uh, the Pharisees were all about leading the sheep to themselves, to worship and adore and honor themselves, but not God. In fact, they would burden the people with whatever load made them seem the holiest. Pharisees were also called to bring back the lost, to rescue sheep that were wandering or in danger. But, but what was the attitude of the Pharisees towards the lost sheep of Israel? Well, it was loathing. It was loathing that caused them to put as much distance between them and their sheep as possible. In fact, we saw earlier in this same chapter, verse 11, that they scoffed at the fact that Jesus would even eat with such people. And when Jesus shared the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and he went on to describe how the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I, I thank you I'm not like that tax collector. When he gave that parable, what he was doing is painting a picture of the prideful revulsion that characterized the Pharisees, Israel's leaders. The Pharisees were also called to care for the, the needy and the sick and the injured. 
God's law is full of commands for the protection and the provision of those who couldn't take care of themselves. God is the one who pleads the cause of the widow, the foreigner, and the orphan. The Pharisees, as teachers and experts on that law, were to champion keeping it and extending God's compassion to those in need. But again, their self-love holds them back from carrying out their duty. As Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, as he healed people who had been crippled or blind from birth, as he uh, allowed them to walk or see for the very first time, you know, the Pharisees only cared about the fact that they, that Jesus had broken their own um, Sabbath-keeping regulations. It's all they cared about. They didn't care about that Jesus had healed these people. But the Pharisees of Jesus' day were not the first ones to have failed in their, their duty to lead. Their failure had been shared by generation after generation of leaders. This is what the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, declared hundreds of years earlier. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you did not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, but with force and harshness you have ruled them. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day were yet one link in a long chain of frail, weak, and sinful leaders that had been appointed over Israel. Unfortunately, this chain of imperfect leaders is one that stretches to our own day as well. There are false shepherds who would use their people for financial gain or to prop up their own reputation. Shepherds who deny Christ either by their sin or their bad theology or by both. And some of you may have been taken advantage of them or hurt by them. But even those of us who have had good examples, good leaders to follow, need to be reminded that the best of men are human and they fail. They too have weakness and sin. I think it's helpful to be reminded that Moses, a great leader of Israel, a prophet who even spoke to God as one speaks to a friend, did not enter the land because of his sin. And this is a problem for us, isn't it? Because we are often just like those people that Jesus calls in this passage sheep. We have a tendency to stray. This is what the prophet Isaiah said about us. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. All of us, just like sheep, are prone to acting foolishly, to wandering away, to believing false teaching, to growing weak from malnourishment, from not being spiritually fed. And because of that weakness, we might be tempted to place our hope in our leaders, to look to our pastors or our parents or other spiritual authorities, but they simply cannot bear that weight. 
if we look to them to be our saviors, we'll be disappointed. But if human shepherd after shepherd have failed, who can then we look to for unfailing care? Who can we trust will always be there to bind up our wounds, to lead us to green pasture and cool water, to bring us back when we stray? And thankfully, the prophet Ezekiel, later in that same chapter, answers these pressing questions. Listen to what God's solution is to wandering sheep and deficient shepherds. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So the solution to wandering sheep and deficient shepherds is that God himself will shepherd his people. He will feed them. He will care for them. He will seek them out. He will heal them. What a wonderful picture of that that we just read for the call of worship in Psalm 23 this morning. God will shepherd his people. And in verse 23, it says that he will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, to be their shepherd. Now this is not a prophecy about David himself. When this prophecy was given, David had been long gone, dead and buried for many years. No, this prophecy is about, not David, but one like David. A king, a shepherd, a prophet, one from David's line. This prophecy is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the solution to wandering sheep and deficient shepherds is, yes, that God will shepherd his people, but we see that that God will shepherd them through Jesus Christ, his son. God himself comes as a man to lead his sheep back to himself. When all others fail because of weakness or or pride or fear, God's own son steps in as the good shepherd. So let's return to our text, uh, looking at our text, verse 36, and see how the good shepherd responds to the wandering sheep of Israel. It says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. So as Jesus encounters the same people that the Pharisees scorned, rejected, exploited, Jesus responds with compassion. The word for compassion here means to be moved in your guts in the Greek. It's similar to how we might say that Our heart was moved when we saw a redemptive scene in a movie or or maybe how we might say our heart went out to somebody in a, a difficult situation. 
It's a term for a powerful feeling that comes from inside of us, especially when we see others in need. And as it's used biblically, it's, it's a feeling that always leads to action. Compassion that sees need but turns away is not true compassion. You're deceiving yourself that if you think because you felt sorry for someone, you had true compassion on them. No, compassion is a powerful stirring inside of us that moves us to act. It propels us to comfort the weary, to lift up the downcast, to care for the sick, to lavish the undeserved with kindness and with love. And nowhere is this more powerfully illustrated than in Jesus' parables. It's a reoccurring theme. It was the compassion of the master that led him to forgive an unthinkably large debt that his servant had accrued. It was the compassion of the father that caused him to not only receive and forgive his wayward son, but to honor and bless him. It was the compassion of the good Samaritan that led him to provide for the every need of a complete stranger. Jesus' parables showcase what true compassion looks like. The kind of compassion that Jesus shows, and he shows in our passage today. The kind of compassion that we ought to show towards others. So when you see others in need, and you see them financially strained, physically weary, spiritually discouraged, don't turn away from their needs. When the Holy Spirit stirs up that feeling of compassion in you, don't suppress it. Pray for them and think of what you can do to relieve that burden. Whether it is giving them a gift of money or bringing them a meal, an encouraging word or a note. In our passage today, we see Jesus having compassion and then acting. As he looked upon the Israelites like sheep without a shepherd and felt compassion on them, it was that compassion that moved him to shepherd the shepherdless. Let's return again to verse 35. It says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. Okay, so this is a summary statement. It does help us fill in the blank spaces of Jesus' ministry, but it's not just that. It's also a rich description of Jesus shepherding the shepherdless. And it describes him doing three things, okay? Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Let's take a minute to look at each of those. It says that Jesus taught in the synagogues. Okay, um, it's probably helpful when you think of the synagogue to think maybe of a modern day church building. It was a place where the Jewish people met for worship and for instruction like we, we do in this building. And Jesus often used this setting, the synagogue, as a platform to teach. And the Gospels give us snap, snapshots here and there of Jesus doing just that, teaching in the synagogues. Luke records one of those for us. Luke says that while Jesus was in the synagogue, he read a prophecy from Isaiah. 
about a spirit-filled servant of God. And you know what Jesus did after he read that prophecy? He said, it has been fulfilled in me. John records another instance of Jesus teaching in the synagogues. It says that Jesus taught at Capernaum, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus, as he taught in the synagogues, taught that Old Testament prophecies found their fulfillment in him. He taught that he was the Messiah, that he was God's servant for the salvation of Israel. Secondly, it says that Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. There's no mystery here about what that means. It was a message first heralded by John in Matthew 3. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus picked up that same message when he began his public ministry in Matthew 4. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in a few verses, Jesus is going to commission his disciples and tell them to bring the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what Jesus proclaimed was the coming of the kingdom of God. That was the good news of the kingdom. Jesus Christ, the king, had brought the reign of God to earth itself. And he was calling his subjects to himself, joining them together in the church, which would then extend his rule and push back the curse through the gospel message. And soon Jesus, uh, soon after saying this, Jesus would um, ascend to heaven and sit down at the right hand of his father and rule. His message is, hey, the king has come. The kingdom has come. You come and become a part of that kingdom because soon all of God's enemies are going to be brought under his feet. So we have teaching, proclaiming, and then thirdly, it says that Jesus healed every disease and affliction. Um, as we've seen so far in our study through Matthew's gospel, Jesus has healed all sorts of people, all sorts of ailments. He's healed lepers, the sick, demon-possessed, paralyzed, the blind, and he's even raised the dead to life. The power and authority that Jesus displayed as he healed people was a testimony to the coming of God's kingdom that people could see. And it was a validation of what Jesus said about himself, his identity as God's Messiah. And these healings also pointed beyond themselves, right? There was a deeper spiritual healing that Jesus had come to provide. Okay, he didn't come only to heal men's bodies. He came to heal their souls. So as we look at these three things together, um, we have teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good, the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. As we look at all those, we see, okay, what Jesus is doing in his ministry is he's pointing people to himself. He taught them he was the Messiah, that Old Testament prophecies found their fulfillment in him. He proclaimed that the kingdom had come and that he was its king. He healed them, showing that he was willing and able to save, yes, their bodies, but also their souls. 
So as Jesus shepherded the sheep, he was shepherding them to himself. He was what they needed most, more than anything in the world. If they would only come to him, they would receive fullness of joy and peace, life, and eternal inheritance. But unlike the Pharisees, who took advantage of the sheep for their own gain, uh, Jesus' ministry, his shepherding, was costly. We mustn't forget that as Jesus labored tirelessly in his uh, teaching, preaching, and healing, there are so many people who came to him with needs, so many people who wanted to uh, see him and hear from him, but he lived as though his own needs were scarcely worth notice. One helpful example of this is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, it's, this miracle is well known for, obviously, the miraculous healing of a lot of people with only a little food. But I think it's helpful to look at the circumstances surrounding this. So Jesus and his disciples had attempted to cross the Sea of Galilee because they were so busy that the text says in in Mark's gospel, they didn't even have time to eat. They were that swamped with people coming to them. But as they started to cross the Sea of Galilee, the people saw that they were doing that and thought, you know what we can do? We can run ahead of them and meet them there. That'll be great. Then we can hear more from Jesus. We can bring our needs to him. And that's exactly what they did. So as Jesus and his disciples landed the boat looking for somewhere where they could rest, be away from the crowds, there the crowds were. Imagine the frustration you might feel at that. You've been working so hard for these people, right? Healing them, teaching them, just want a little break. And here they are pestering you again. But this is what Mark records about that. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And Luke adds this, he welcomed them, spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who were in need of healing. So Jesus' response to this isn't frustration, but it's compassion. It's selfless care for his sheep. His response is not, here we go again, but it's welcome. Yes, I'll teach you. Yes, I'll heal you. I'll meet your every need. And then, instead of sending them away hungry, he miraculously fed them so that they wouldn't have to go away hungry. And that's where the miracle of the fish and the loaves comes in. He wouldn't send his sheep away without feeding them first. Now that is a pretty tremendous example of of shepherding and self-sacrifice, isn't it? But our Lord would go even much further in serving his sheep. This is what Jesus says in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. And that's exactly what Jesus did. 
It's an astonishing statement, isn't it? Now, certainly a good shepherd would defend his sheep, right? Maybe even risk injury protecting his sheep. David did that. David fought lions and bears to protect his sheep. But on the other hand, what shepherd, knowing that certain death awaited them, would still try to rescue or fight for their sheep? Who would do that? Well, no shepherd would do that because the life of a shepherd is worth more than many, many, many sheep, right? But that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. The Son of God willingly laid his life down for the sheep. He laid it down for for rebels and sinners like you and me. Paul says this in Romans 5, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one would uh, even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a good shepherd he is. The eternal, perfectly righteous, brilliantly holy son of God dies not just for creatures, right? But warps, wicked creatures at that. And how does this compare to how Israel's religious leaders had used their sheep to their own advantage? So as we strive for faithfulness in every area of life, we need to look to him, to Jesus Christ, all the more for guidance, care, and strength. We need to remember that he is the good shepherd, and he has cared so dearly for for his sheep, for us, that he had laid down his life for us. Even, Even as we encounter the shortcomings and failures of the earthly shepherds that God has placed over us, we can know that there is one who will never fail us, never leave us, never take advantage of us. We can know he will never stop working for our good, even if the shepherd's path leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, as we come to verse 37, we see Jesus calling his disciples to join him in that mission, to share in that work of shepherding a shepherdless Israel. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here Jesus is introducing another metaphor that was common to Jewish life, the harvest. Harvest time was a big deal back then, still is today. It's a culmination of a lot, a lot of work, right? A plowing, a planting, a weeding, waiting for God to send the rain. But a field that's now ready for harvest is also an occasion for urgency. You can't pat yourself on the back when the crop is still in the fields. It's gotta be harvested. Workers need to be sent out to harvest it before it spoils. And uh, the greater the harvest there is, the more workers you're gonna need. So just as Jesus 
looked out on the crowds and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So he saw them as stalks of grain needing to be harvested. Jesus is calling his disciples to join with him in bringing people into the kingdom of God, just as a harvester might grow out, go out and bring grain into a barn. Jesus says here that the harvest was plentiful. It was great. There were so many that needed to be ministered to. There were so many who needed to be made disciples of Christ and brought into his kingdom. And that reality has not changed. J.C. Ryle wrote this in 1857. There are many like this to be seen on every side. There are millions of idolaters and heathen on earth, millions of deluded Muslims, millions of superstitious Roman Catholics. There are thousands of ignorant and unconverted Protestants near our own doors. I think we can praise God that since that time, yeah, the gospels continue to go forth. People have continued to be saved. The gospels or the, the Bibles continue to be translated in all sorts of different languages. But his description here is still extremely accurate. I mean, look around you. How many truly converted people do you know, do you see around you? Even in a city like this, that has multiple evangelical churches in it. Now, compared to this great need, the number of harvesters that there are, the number of people that there are to bring in the harvest, to bring people into the kingdom, is, is minuscule, isn't it? And the obvious solution to this problem is for more laborers to be sent out. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, at first glance, this may seem like a pretty small thing to do in light of that great need, doesn't it? But here's the thing. When we pray, we make an appeal to the sovereign Lord of all creation. We make an appeal to the one who is in control of all of human history, to the one who is the master of men's souls. Yes, sharing your faith is great. Yes, giving to missionary efforts is great. Loving your neighbor, being an example of Christ's love is great, needed. But when we pray, we ask the Lord himself to bring fruit from all of those efforts. And Jesus says here that we specifically need to pray that God would raise up more people to carry the gospel to the lost. So if we consider his illustration again, okay, he says that pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Okay, if we think at that picture he's giving us, okay, it's like if a servant is tasked with bringing in the harvest, and he goes out and he looks at the fields. Um, huge fields of potatoes, corn, wheat. But he sees also only a few workers in those fields. Wouldn't it make sense for him to go straight to the Lord of the harvest and say, look, the, the, the harvest looks wonderful. There's a lot of crop out there, but, 
but master, we, we don't have enough people to bring in the harvest. Would you send out more workers to bring in the crops? Wouldn't it make sense for him to do that? So far from being an inferior, well, kind of second best option to evangelism, when we pray, we go to the very source of the power and authority of the gospel itself. To the one who rules over men's hearts, who can bend them as he pleases, who can turn a a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, who can stir up compassion for the lost and then fling them out into the world with the gospel message. So prayer is powerful. It's important. But here's where those prayers have to start. Lord, would you send me Would you open my mouth to speak the truth of God's word? So we don't want to be hypocrites praying, oh God, Lord, there's there's so many needs out there. There's so many people who don't know you. I look all around me, my neighbors, coworkers, they they don't know you. They need someone to go to them. But then say, well, I'm not talking about me. I'm not really interested. We don't want to be hypocrites like that. No, we need to pray that the Lord would send us. And this needs to be such an earnest prayer of ours because our flesh is weak. Can't we come up with dozens and dozens of excuses about why we are not sharing the truth with our neighbors? We think, well, it's just a bad time. I don't really know what to say or, well, I'll do it just later. We can come up with excuse after excuse after excuse. So we need our eyes to be opened to a world full of helpless sheep, to a world full of ripe grain that urgently needs to be brought in. We need to pray that the Spirit of God would give us the perspective of our Lord and his heart of compassion. He worked tirelessly because he loved the people. He loved them needy as they were. In fact, he saw those needs as opportunities to love them. As opportunities to care for and share the truth with them. We need to be praying to have that perspective, that mission. Evangelism is often an area of struggle for Christians. I'm sure many of you have experienced that. The reality is it can be discouraging to be confronted with our own failure to do it time and time again. To be confronted with family, friends who are still unsaved despite the fact that we have uh, shared the truth with them, done our best. But let me remind you just once again that when we pray, we are petitioning the Lord of the harvest. God sees the end from the beginning. Proverbs 21 says that he directs the king's heart like a stream of water in his hand. goes wherever he pleases. Now it would not be a large thing for him to throw you out in the harvest 
with new passion and determination. It would not be a large thing for him to send out many more people than just you, even into this community. It would not be a large thing for him to bring many more souls into submission to his rule and to transform this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, pray. Jesus lays the application out for us in this passage. Pray for more harvesters. Pray that the Lord would send you. Ask for faith that he would answer your prayers for the salvation of souls to the glory of God. And if it doesn't seem like God has answered your prayers right away, be persistent. Be like the the blind man from last week's sermon who cried out, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us, who followed Jesus until he finally healed them. Be persistent in prayer out of obedience to God and love for your neighbor. Remember that you too used to be a lost sheep, like many, so many are. Remember that the only reason that that has changed is because Christ, out of compassion, looked on you with love and kindness. And that he has called you into his flock and has never stopped caring for you or working for your good ever since. Let's pray together. Lord, I am just amazed at your kindness and graciousness to sinners like us that you have shown through your son, Jesus Christ, and his shepherding, those without a shepherd. Because I know, Lord, my tendency to stray, how often I want to flirt with sin, how often I fail. Um, thank you for showing your grace to me, your, your grace to us, Lord as a church body, for caring for us as your sheep. God, would we meditate on and know what you have done for us, know the wretched life and the sin that you have saved us from, the eternal judgment we deserved. Help us to realize that so many are just like that, even now. They have your judgment upon them. They continue to be lost sheep. They have no shepherd. May may we have compassion on them, Lord. May that be a work of your spirit in us. We would care for souls. And that, that would lead us to action. We would not only go out and, and try to meet the needs of others, but we would attempt to meet their greatest need by bringing them the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing the joy and the peace that we have from being in relationship with him, and that, Lord, you have swung the door of salvation open wide for all those who would come in through the gospel, through Christ's sacrifice. Be gracious to us as as your poor servants. Pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.